the way in which sexual violence has been proven in international courts and tribunals has largely been through direct victim as evidence or witness evidence. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hey, Steph. Today, we're going to talk about conflict-related sexual violence or gender-based sexual violence or, and you have another acronym that I didn't know. PSVI. I don't even know what it is. It's something to do with violence and conflict, but it's to do with survivors. Anyway, we'll get to that. So lots of acronyms. And while I was reporting on this, because I've been doing a lot of stories for, for Reuters related to Ukraine, I realized we really need sexual and gender-based violence 101 to really figure out what the issues are, what the developments are in this field. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if I would have admitted it, actually, because of course I'm a big specialist. But yes, I agree we do need this. And presumably if we need it, then probably everybody else does. At least to just survey where we are, which is different from probably where we were five or ten years ago, because things have moved on. Yeah. And to do this, we've enlisted two absolute experts who can guide us. They are Professor Kim Chui Selinger of the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. Kim is also the special advisor to the ICC prosecutor on sexual violence in conflict. Hi, Kim. Hi. And we have Professor Valerie Ostervelt from Canada's Western Law University, who's been writing about gender and international law long enough to have been present at the drafting of the ICC statute as part of the Canadian delegation in 1998. Hi, Valerie. Hi there. So I've been talking to you both for various Reuters story, and it struck me how little I actually know about conflict-related sexual violence. And so I thought we would brought you together and, and kind of talk us through the developments. But I think we should really start with some basic things and ask a really, really beginner question. What is sexual violence and what is conflict-related sexual violence and how do those two things differ? We'll take inputs from both of you on so many different things. So we're not directing questions necessarily to one person or the others. Who wants to go first? So sexual violence would be a form of gender-based violence, usually that can involve sexual organs or a sexualized act of some sort. So you have a wide range of them in any context, right? You have rape, you have some types of sex-based trafficking, uh, you have different forms of traditional practices that can involve sexual violence, like forced marriage or early marriage, things like this, that we see even outside of conflict. I think what you see in conflict is an exacerbation of some of those forms. They can happen on a mass scale. It's not just an individual case, but it might be a form of violence inflicted upon a whole community, often by armed actors, maybe state authorities, in the displacement from conflict, you see other forms of gender-based and sexual violence that happen as people try to cross borders. They're vulnerable. They don't have papers with them. They become very vulnerable to different forms of sexual exploitation. So you have a whole array of forms that become exacerbated in conflict, plus the introduction of different actors, plus sometimes levels of brutality that you don't see often in day-to-day -day sexual crimes. So I'm thinking of violence that we were seeing in, like just recently in Ethiopia, for example, where I was able to catch a glimpse of some of the medical records up um, in some of the hospitals in Tigray of, you know, women 
being brutalized in ways that are actually, I probably wouldn't describe on your podcast, but unfathomable for just sort of regular sexual violence, I think, in downtown San Francisco, say. So I think you have a difference in terms of the level of brutality sometimes of the forms and introduction of different actors. I would add to the answer of what is sexual violence that what is sexual can change from culture to culture and place to place. And the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice issued a report based on much consultation on what is sexual violence that I would commend to the listeners of this podcast because it shows how varied sexual violence can be and that it is more than rape or sexual slavery or sexual mutilation, that it can go, it can include body parts that in some places wouldn't be considered sexual, but in other places are. What I'm hearing from both of you, and I was particularly thinking about that campaign of women's initiatives around, let's call it what it is. So Kim, it sounds like it's everything, almost. I mean, it's practically every act that I can imagine being discussed during a conflict could be part of sexual violence. Almost everything. I mean, apart from maybe sort of the highest level crime of aggression or something like that. But it, it really feels very all-encompassing now. Or am I misinterpreting what you're saying? It might be perhaps the other way around in that you can see sexual violence manifest in different ways that could be different types of crimes, right? You could have a war crime that involves sexual violence. You could have crimes against humanity that also involve sexual violence. Acts of genocide may take the shape of sexual violence. So it's, in a way, you can see it arise. It's an expression of you know, the criminality. The crime itself. It's exactly. one of the ways that the crimes are being committed is via sexual violence. That's right. Okay, so I've got to turn it around in my head. Can I add one thing? I wonder if what you're getting at is that every crime is gendered in some way, shape, or form. They're, crimes may be gendered, but they don't always get expressed as sexual violence, but they can be expressed in ways that differ, for example, between how women and girls are treated and how men and boys are treated or how LGBTIQ plus people are treated. And that is, in my view, a very fundamental aspect of analyzing war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. If one can understand the gendered underpinnings of how people are targeted or how they are harmed and affected, that goes a long way to explaining the why of what's happened in an armed conflict. That's exactly right. And I was focusing, because you we were asking about sexual violence, so I was looking specifically at those acts, but Valerie's totally right that we're coming to much more understanding about how to do the full gender analysis and do that intersectionally so you can see how gender plays into ethnicity or age. And these are overlapping vulnerabilities that will often help us understand. If we can understand that about a place and a, a conflict, then we understand why certain things happen to certain people. I'm promising that we're going to do an intersectionality podcast soon as well, because I can also hear this is a word that's coming up. Before I ask my next question, I want to just tell our listeners that you can hear maybe some noise in the background. We're at Humanity Hub and everybody is uh, in the office on a Thursday making coffee kind of next to us. So maybe if you hear some of that, that's it. But we hope that this is interesting enough so that you'll keep listening. 
There's a lot of misconceptions about that prosecution of rape in international courts will be very similar to the way it's done in national prosecutions. And I wonder if you could say something about the differences in which it's being treated in court, because we also see uh, in the Ukraine investigation, there's a lot of kind of focus on getting physical examinations. And, and that's the kind of thing that almost never comes up in international cases that I've been that involved this. So, so I wanted to get your your view on what that difference is. I think if we start with Valerie and then move on to Kim. One of the main differences between domestic prosecutions of rape cases and international prosecutions is that in international prosecutions, there is much more attention paid specifically to the evidence coming directly from the victim survivor and less so on asking about whether a rape kit, for example, has been undertaken in the particular case. That's not to say that it couldn't happen, that physical or scientific evidence with respect to, for example, rape couldn't be brought at an international tribunal. Of course it could, but the way in which sexual violence has been proven in international courts and tribunals has largely been through direct victim as evidence or witness evidence. I think the things you're trying to prove are a little bit different, right? So in a domestic system, typically you're looking for evidence of in rape, in the case of rape, the sexual contact, the, the forced sexual contact, you need to have a known perpetrator. You know, we don't do a lot of in absentia rape trials in a domestic system. And you also need that it often pivots on the question of consent. Was the person intoxicated? So that's where those cases often hinge. And so you have a lot of the toxicology reports and the, all of that going to the, the question of consent. And in the international criminal cases, that's not where the focus is so far because of a number of resource questions and priority questions. The international tribunals have been looking at higher level commanders often, right? And they're often not the ones who committed the direct rape of the victims and the survivors that you have testifying. And so you don't, you don't have the known perpetrator often. You don't often have the person who physically harmed your survivor. And so the question becomes, can you tie that armed group or the, the, the group that had the presence in that town at that time? Were they under the command or, or was, was this person, the defendant in the dock, ultimately responsible? And so a lot of the the proofing, that a lot of the, the attempt is to prove that connection to the person you have in the dock. So the, the evidence is often on that linkage more than li needing to see a rape kit. That, that The fact of the rape is often not contested in the international tr criminal tribunals. And often you don't have the need really to show the direct perpetrator as long as you can really show that they were in a unit or somehow controlled by your defendant. You have some cases where you have the direct perpetrator, you know, the person who actually committed the rape, but by and large, that's not the, the focus. And as to the question of consent, we have jurisprudence that looks a little different, right? It's, you know, you look at the overall environment, could someone have genuinely consented to this act given the power dynamics, the insecurity, the threat of five people standing there armed to the teeth, right? And this is where we have just the court's understanding that you know you can't reasonably consent to that. So that's not often the focus of sort of the evidence. And can I ask one more kind of general helicopter question that I'd like to understand from both of you? What has changed over the last five, 10 years in the discourse 
around this because again I've found myself having to write about it much more than I used to I feel there's a political will around it people actually are acknowledging things in the way in which they they didn't before how does it feel for for you what's changed Kim yeah I think a lot has changed in the last 10 years this is a good opportunity to explain what PSVI stands for, Absolutely. if you like. Yes. <laughs> I know it's Victims in Conflict, and it must be Preventing. So, yeah, no? so or? it was an initiative launched just about 10 years ago by the British government. It's the Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative. So the conflict word isn't in the title, but that's what they were looking at. And it's just one expression of political will. So the UK government has taken you know, a real front role in shining a light on this issue, which is good. So I think some of the developments in the last few years, just in terms of awareness, right, we have finally a, started looking at this issue as something that should be addressed, not just in terms of jurisprudence, but in terms of survivors' needs. The question of reparations, right, has come up quite recently and really has become central to the conversation. We're talking more about men and boys and how they are affected and can suffer sexual and gender-based violence. Also, as Valerie mentioned, LGBTIQ individuals. So there's an awareness that it's not just about women and girls. There's also a tension about making sure we don't take the spotlight away from the fact that we have a long way to go in terms of dealing and then preventing what happens to women and girls in these contexts. So I think those are some major developments. Also, one piece that hasn't We've seen the data in the academic literature for a while, but it's not part of the conversation so much yet, but it's female perpetration. I've seen, you know, we've had the data for almost 10 years now in certain contexts, but that, that is not yet part of this discourse. And I, I, I await that conversation because it forces us to bring a little more nuance to our understanding of gender and how it plays out. I'm hearing a number of spin-off podcasts that we're going to have to do on uh, this. But <laughs> before we go any further, Valerie, what would you say has changed? If I could expand the timeline a little bit, I have been involved in this, and this is showing my age, since the creation of the Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal. And I have seen a massive change in the understanding of what is sexual and gender-based violence and how to prosecute it in a gender-sensitive, trauma-informed, victim-centered manner. All the way from, I recall fighting for the understanding that rape is a crime against humanity and a war crime back in 1993-94. That just sounds incredible to even have to have had to have had that fight then. Yes, it 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 is incredible that given that it was even recognized in international criminal law as a crime against humanity and war crime back then, but to surface, if I can use that term that was coined by the late Professor Rhonda Copeland to surface what sexual violence is, what gender-based violence is. What I've seen in all of those years is the continual servicing of different forms of sexual and gender-based violence and then deeper understanding of each of those. So at first, the focus was on rape, and all of the attention was on rape. And that required a lot of unpacking. And, and the fact that it's not only women who are raped in war, that girls, men, boys non-binary individuals are raped in armed conflict. And what does that mean for defining what the crime is so it's not only focused on female body parts, for example? Then to understanding sexual slavery, to understanding forced marriage as an other inhumane act, to understanding 
different types of sexual violence and then to widen the whole thing to understand where all of that sits in gender-based violence. It has come very far, but with all sorts of bumps along the way, because it seemed in all of the different tribunals, we would make one big step forward and then take a half step back and then a big step forward and a half step back. The ICC and the Rome Statute is considered groundbreaking for the way they really broaden what is sexual violence and what things could constitute war crimes and crimes against humanity. Now, Valerie, you were in the room when that stuff was hashed out. Why is naming and providing categories so important? Because a lot of this stuff was being prosecuted at the ad hoc tribunals, but then as torture, as inhumane treatment. You know, what is the significance of, of the naming and the having these categories for it? There are two important reasons why we need to name the sexual violence and the gender-based violence for what it is. The first is for the legal principle of legality, that when a person is being prosecuted for particular crimes, one needs to label them accurately so that they know what they're defending themselves against. That's a, a defense-related principle. And then the other is an expressive principle for victims and survivors to be able to identify when someone is convicted for a particular crime, it's that thing that was done to them. And this is why the label of forced marriage or forced pregnancy, for example, is so important and interesting because then when someone is convicted for, for example, forced marriage and they had been labeled a wife or a bushwife, they can see that thing that happened to me is labeled a crime and not just something that happened in armed conflict. I agree with all of that. And also the fact that the Rome Statute becomes the basis for law reform in, other, in countries around the world too. They do look at the Rome Statute as they either directly incorporate it or use it to you know, reform different parts of their own criminal code. And so having that type of clarity It's very helpful. Having a gender-neutral definition of rape is actually very helpful because many countries don't. It's still very gendered in how rape is understood so that male victims can't be recognized as a victim of rape in some countries. So I think that's the other you know, sort of byproduct, I think, of, of defining things clearly in the Rome Statute for these crimes is that it does expand the, the understanding of different forms of sexual violence for other jurisdictions, domestic jurisdictions too. I was at this uh, Ukrainian conflict-related sexual violence panel where, where Kim was also on the panel. That's uh, this week as we were recording. It's during the Assembly of States parties. Yes, and they were talking about also the issues, and I think you touched upon it, also the issue of self-identification of victims. Is that also something that plays into this where people or victims don't think they're victims because they weren't specifically raped, but other things happen to them and they don't see themselves as victims? There's so much there, Stephanie. Yes, I think that's part of it. Sometimes the understanding is if it's not rape, it doesn't count or it won't matter. So that's one thing. So if people who have been assaulted in some other way that is sexual assault or even attempts, right? Attempted rape is a crime, but if it didn't, some people don't understand that that is something you could bring forward. So that does impede some people's ability or understanding of themselves as victims or survivors of a crime that could be relevant to international criminal proceeding for sure. But self-identification is a whole other bucket. I mean, I think 
what I was understanding from a little bit of the conversation I was having with human rights defenders and women's organizations in Ukraine this past year is something that reminded me of what we were seeing in Colombia years ago also, where this is very anecdotal, right? But I was hearing some repeated situations where women didn't necessarily see themselves as victims of rape when they were living in an occupied community and faced with an armed actor because they felt like they had consented. And why? Because otherwise their husband would have been shot in the head, right? And so this is where it gets a little bit complicated. In, in the Columbia situation, this also happened, and it's been described as strategic submission, right? Where, where you make a, what you feel is a rational decision to proceed and you, you feel like it might be consent, but in truth, because of what we talked about earlier, the, the environment of coercion, the environment of an armed conflict really makes that very, it's hard to think of that as genuine consent. But then what do you do? Do you tell women, no, really, you are a victim or survivor of rape? If that's not how she sees herself, that's not how she sees herself. And we've had that description already. You said, I mean, that we're moving towards this uh, survivor-centered approach. I mean, the survivors should be leading, so surely it should be up to them to define Exactly, exactly. And what should happen is maybe this person would not want to proceed in a legal proceeding. Maybe what she wants is emergency contraception and that's it, right? And it, it really should be up to her to decide what it is that she needs then and then leave the door open so that in a year, five years, 10 years, if at some point she wants to engage the legal process, that door is still open. Like the timing has to be up to the survivor, him or herself, or themselves. So I think that's a challenge because there's a lot of pressure sometimes to bring cases as soon as possible. But a judicial clock is very different than a survivor's clock, and and they often don't align. And I think that's that's a tension that we do have to accept and figure out what to do about from the justice side. That's the center of the Murad Code. So ways in which to document and investigate sexual violence in conflict should we just explain what the Murad Code is? The Murad Code is a code that was created at the initiative of Nadia Murad, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a survivor of conflict-related sexual violence as a Yazidi survivor. It was an attempt to provide very clear and basic guidance that could be used for anyone conducting investigations, documenting, to be very survivor-centered, as Valerie said, to understand things like the impacts of trauma on how someone responds to you or doesn't respond to you, right? Or ways to provide as much agency to the person you're talking to as possible from things like how, how the space is organized, when they meet you, how you interact with them. And so really trying to ask folks who are in the business of documentation or other service provision to put their own objectives secondary, right? Really make sure that they're listening to what the survivor, him or her or themselves wants to tell you. It has some practical guidance and also some overarching principles that I think are, it's useful for people in many different roles, right? Not just folks in the business of accountability. The code tells those who are documenting or investigating sexual violence that they need to respect the timelines of the survivors. So if the survivors are not ready right now to document the sexual violence that they have endured, to be able to leave the door open so that in the future they can choose to then pursue, if they wish, 
justice with respect to sexual violence. And I was really heartened yesterday at that Ukraine meeting, Stephanie, when the new head of the Conflict-Related Sexual Violence Unit in Ukraine's War Crimes Unit of the Office of the Prosecutor General, she was saying exactly the same thing. And I, she's new in the position. I think this will be the one of the main messages she brings to her team, that we should document what we can, but we shouldn't force or rush anyone. We have to play a long game here, which is great, because we, like you, I was hearing some things about how... The, teams were initially conducting their work and running out and asking, is there a survivor here? And obviously that can't happen. I believe it when I heard that, you know, has anybody here been raped, essentially, which is just uh, what we can remember happening during the Bosnia war. Just, you know, can somebody tell me? classic line of, I think somebody used it in a book where somebody just walked into some camp and said, has anybody here been raped and speaks English? And speaks English, yes. Yeah, Uh, I remember that from Haiti after the earthquake. I mean, it was a lot of Actually, journalists actually parachuting in and same in Cox's Bazaar, same in Rwanda. Yeah. What is kind of the research on re-traumatization when you get victims to tell their stories? Because I, as a as a journalist, you walk a very fine line in that there's a story you're interested in, you want to get it out. Sometimes survivors want to get it out and and have it be known to the world. I, I speak to a lot of, of, of survivors usually later when they're in, in court cases. So they have already made this decision and they're known and they, they tell their stories multiple times. But I am talking to somebody and making them relive a situation that's very traumatic. So how, you know, how do you try to counter that? To what sense should journalists really be trying to counter that and stop somebody from potentially doing something that is harmful for them or at all? I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I, I mean, I think at a baseline, I mean, we have to want, ask first, why do why are we trying to tell this story, right? So even questioning the story, is there a very good reason to be trying to present and shine a light on this particular story of sexual violence, right? And if there is a good reason, then the second question in my mind is, what are the least intrusive ways of getting the information for the story? And sometimes you can learn quite a bit from the surrounding entities, the person service provider. You can get a, a bird's eye view if you can talk to someone in the, you know, in the medical clinic that has seen a lot of cases. You can get some aggregate impression of how many requests, you know, what was the spike in requests for abortion or emergency contraception in that town, that time period. So you can get a lot of information not from the survivor, obviously. And and then I think if if the decision is to really try to talk to a survivor directly, then I, I find seeing who the women's rights groups are in the area and asking them, is there someone in your community who is willing or ready to speak and, and not approaching people directly? I think the power differential in approaching survivor is too great. Even with the best intentions, it's really hard for people who have already been violated and disempowered to tell someone who seems to care about them, no, right? It's it's too hard, and I think we have to take an honest look at how any of us approach survivors and the power we aren't intentionally bringing into that conversation. So deferring to the women's organizations or the survivors' organizations about what stories are able to be told and under what conditions, and then really, really being thoughtful about informed consent, which honestly is often a fiction, but really, what is consent? Do people understand how they can withdraw rescind consent? Do they know how to reach you? Do they know exactly what the scope of your audience is and all the ways you'd use their words? So just being very, very thoughtful and transparent about that, making sure they have your contact information. If you have a boss, your boss's contact information. So 
those are some of the thoughts I have about that. And in terms of re-traumatization, I think discussing with someone beforehand what they'd like to talk about, what they wouldn't like to talk about, and just from working with survivors for so long and asking them about that, for our disclosure research recently, I was surprised to find that many of the survivors who responded in focus group discussions about the experience of disclosure, contrary to what I had thought, they said even very superficial discussion about their past put them back in a very dark place, almost as much as a more detailed conversation, right? which was surprising to me. I thought that deeper disclosure would be more disruptive, but we're not for the women in the focus groups that, that responded. So I'll stop there because I'm sure Valerie has thoughts here too. Everything Kim has said is exactly what I would say as well. But I would add that as a journalist, I think you need to also stop and think, okay, I have the informed consent of this individual who is willing to describe the sexual violence they have endured. But what danger does that put them in? So that if they hadn't quite realized the danger that they might be in, that you could ask them about it so that their informed consent is truly informed. Because sometimes victims are willing to tell you about their circumstances, but may not have thought to the level of what type of reprisals could that engender for me in the future. And it's important to give some additional thought to the wider context as well. I want to um, say that we will add a link to the DART Centre's Guide for Journalists on Covering Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. I helped them try to promote it earlier this year or last year to make sure it got into journalism schools and so on. And if I summarised it, sort of basically it would be, think before you do it. That's right. Basically, just think it through. And, and do your homework about referrals, right? Like, do you know where you are? Who would be able to provide psychosocial support after if you do you know, end up re-traumatizing or upsetting somebody. And it's part of the, the risk assessment, I think, that Valerie's alluding to, the physical security, but also just the psychosocial safety after after an interview This can, that can sit with someone for a long time, right? It really, I think it's hard for us to understand how disruptive one conversation can be for somebody. Well, I mean, it's I tried to do this, and I've read the DART guide, and so when I had one of the Ukraine survivors who was C with SEMA here, and so I know there's all the psychosocial support, and I know that she has talked about it before, and she was willing to talk about it, but I really also felt, do you realize that if I put your name and your last name, this is Reuters, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be on the internet. Anybody can search your name and find it. Are you sure that this is what you want? And she said yes, but I still, after reading the guide and, and getting educated on it, I felt bad about it, <laughs> to, well, to quote her. But yeah, and then, we and then should, we the should feel bad about it and we, yeah. should, we should think about it, but we are part of the system. Yes. Again, this is another medium mea culpa there. We have a lot of attention on scale. How widespread is the sexual violence? Specifically, there's a lot of attention now on Ukraine and a lot of everybody asking everybody for figures. But when I had a conversation with Valerie to understand the background for a story we were doing, she said something very interesting, because I always thought that you needed a widespread campaign of sexual violence to prosecute that sexual violence or an act of sexual violence as a crime against humanity. But you corrected me. So I want to give that also to our listeners who are maybe all lawyers and who know this, but I was really surprised by this. Yes, it's a, 
a misconception that in order to prosecute rape as a crime against humanity, for example, or other forms of sexual violence as crimes against humanity, that there needs to be a, a widespread campaign going on and that the prosecutor needs to prove that, but that's not correct. Crimes against humanity are collections of acts that occur that are widespread or systematic and they're directed against civilian population. There could, in any given context, for example, uh, an invasion of a village, be one rape and then some killings and some disappearances or um, forms of improper imprisonment, etc. And it's all of that that's considered together when a prosecutor is investigating crimes against humanity in that area. And that one rape can be a crime against humanity because it exists in this larger context. Sexual violence rarely occurs on its own. It's always as part of a context of many different crimes that are going on. And it's that contextualization that, just generally speaking, is really important in any given prosecution. But it's also the reason why one rape can be a crime against humanity. There's no numerosity requirement, right? I'm also conscious that we're still waiting for the appeals verdict for the single act of sexual violence as potentially genocide in, the, in a Yazidi case in Germany. So again, you know, as we sort of hammer into people, genocide doesn't have to be large numbers, so it can just be one person. So, And I think in different contexts, there are different pressures to produce the numbers, right? There is pressure in Ukraine now, right? It's, I think, partly politically driven to show that this is, these are the crimes that are happening on the territory. But those numbers in Ukraine are a little bit misleading because of what you were talking about earlier, Stephanie, that the cases are counted as individual victim and an act, a perpetrated act, right? So you have thousands of potential files because there are many, many people affected. Whereas really, if we're talking about a national criminal case, you can have thousands of people wrapped up into a single case because it is inherently a mass atrocity. So I think the numbers, we're counting different things in Ukraine right now, but I think it's also tied to the question of survivor centeredness. Like you can't be pushing for numbers if you also respect the need to let survivors take their time. I think in, in time, we'll have more people coming forward, and as territories are deoccupied, certainly we'll learn more. But it shouldn't be a focus on the numbers now. Like This is still very early. People need time. They have other priorities than reporting to the police sometimes. They, their families are being displaced. They don't have electricity. I mean, there's so many other things happening in people's lives that will preempt you know, a report of a very, very stigmatized violation. Can I add one thing, which is what, what Kim has just described is part of the context in which the prosecutor decides on how to frame particular charges. And prosecutors often will try to capture emblematic situations because they cannot prosecute every single attack on every single village in a given armed conflict. So they will choose attacks on certain villages that contain crimes that have also happened in other places in an attempt to express the types of harms that have happened in that armed conflict. And that's why you may have a very small number of rape charges in, in a given case, but they, they stand in, in a way, for rape that has happened in every other village 
in that armed conflict. And we see overwhelmingly in our world that there is a focus on Ukraine. We know it isn't the only conflict out there. But how is the focus on Ukraine changing our understanding of conflict-related sexual violence? Is it you know, making a difference to what we talk about or what we see? Or is it, uh, is it just one more conflict added into the, me- the mess of what we have to deal with? The situation in Ukraine and the revelations of the types of sexual violence that has occurred in Russian-occupied and, and Russian-controlled territories confirms what we already know, that conflict-related sexual violence can happen in any armed conflict in any situation in which there is control by one set of forces or a number of set of forces over a so-called enemy population. So in that way, it's not new, but every conflict is different. And we are seeing patterns in the Ukraine conflict that may look different than the patterns in Colombia or Sierra Leone or Cambodia or any other place as well. And we need to respect that every conflict has different aspects to it. I do think that, I mean, for those of us who have been, you know, just work on this, I think there, there will be some context-specific learning in Ukraine for sure. But I think the greater change is how this has brought conflict-related sexual violence into the mainstream awareness of what happens in conflict. So for good or bad, the world's like, interest in Ukraine which outsizes interest in Ethiopia, for example, or Myanmar, perhaps. I think it does introduce the idea that this this happens. It's 2022, and this is still a form of barbarism that is happening in our armed conflicts. And, you know, I think it does open some eyes. It also helps us, as Valerie said, see that this there's a myth sometimes that this is what happens in Africa, right? And it, it's a it's a grotesque myth, but it's also very important, you know, so that's why it's interesting. Okay, listen, this happens all over the world. It's been a while since we've seen reporting like this out of Europe, but it's certainly happening. A lot of the reporting we kind of also see now is that there's a focus on this sexual violence in Ukraine them being used as a tool of war much more than sometimes indeed what we think about when African conflicts, when it's kind of treated as the inevitable thing that happens when you get a bunch of men together with some weapons and a lot of stress and alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I I think this is where Libby Wood's theorizing around the practice of war is really interesting too. So we we have often thought about conflict-related sexual violence as either purely opportunistic and just what some bad soldiers do on their own time, right, versus strategic, which is there's some military objective that it fulfills and the command's coming from the top. And the truth is a lot of what happens is neither. A lot of what's happening in, in between, right? There's a big, big space in between where it's not explicitly ordered, perhaps, and yet it is conducive to some objective, and so it's allowed or there's acquiescence from command, Sometimes it is implicitly requested, but you don't, you don't see those words on paper, right? But then a lot of it is also socialization of an armed group, and what do they do after? We know from the past, like Russian forces, like they're young, the way they're recruited, you know, they're not, there's not a lot of trainer discipline, they're drinking a lot after, and of course, you know, there's a social norm that can develop among any armed group, including in Russia, where folks just practice behaviors, they tolerate them in each other, no one 
reports on each other and you end up having sexual violence as part of that that behavior, the, the, the unit behavior in a place. So I think that there's a wide array. I think we have to think with much more nuance about why this is happening and then all of it's still a crime, right? And it doesn't really affect the fact, you know, we can still prosecute it in different ways, but understanding the motivations of of different perpetrators, I think is very, very important. It's not all the same. Can I also add that sexual violence has been happening in Ukraine in the conflict since 2014. So what is taking place or what is being revealed now is a continuation and a widening of what we have known has been going on there since 2014 has been reported by the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. That's right. And in fact, a lot of what we know is from reporting that was happening prior to this February 2022 invasion. And so I think there were already investigations documentation that we can build off of. And it teaches us a little bit about the important role of civil society in Ukraine, actually, that set up support groups, set up hotlines years ago, then they are now really such a rich source of information and support for more recent survivors. So is there anything we should actually be looking forward to in this uh, field that will help us understand it better in the next year? At least two things to look forward to out of the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICC is, in addition to the gender persecution policy paper that Special Advisor Lisa Davis has led on another special advisor, Veronique Aubert, who is advising on crimes against and affecting children, is going to lead in the review of the policy paper on crimes affecting children. So that, I think, will be something to look forward to because she's really going to bring some fresh eyes to that policy. And then I will work to conduct the sort of a review and assessment of implementation of the sexual and gender-based crimes policy paper from 2014. It's been eight years now. A lot has happened in the last eight years, so I just want to look at it and see what can be updated and also seek feedback from folks outside of the OTP who have been using it because it has been taken up by the mechanism, civil society, and get their feedback on you know, how they've adapted it and maybe we can learn also from, from their experiences implementing it. So I'm excited about that, that pair of reviews. I'm excited too, because between the updates of these policies, between the launch of the gender persecution policy paper, between the sexual preventing sexual violence initiative conference, there is so much thinking going on, on sexual and gender-based violence and armed conflict. And I think it only bodes for deeper and more nuanced understanding of this type of violence going into the future. Thank you both very much for making the time to to chat to us. Oh, goodness. Yeah. As I said, so many different spin-off podcasts to do and so much more that, that we need to cover. At the end of our podcast, we always ask the same set of questions, which you can both answer. The first one is, what didn't we ask that we should have done? What, what didn't you manage to get in, in our very narrow range of questions, Kim? Anything? Or do you feel that you managed to, uh, to cover a fair amount of ground? No, there's so much more that I think is of great interest and importance. And I, you know, just widening the aperture to think about just reminding us ourselves that these crimes are happening against children, which requires a, like a very different approach and a different level of care and how we ask those questions, the type of support and the, the long-term impacts on them and their families. So I think the issue of children, I think, is, is quite important. And then I think the other 
thing that interests me so greatly is what's the relationship between international criminal law and displacement, right? And international refugee law, right? Like how, what is the role for displaced populations in engaging in judicial processes, investigations that are happening in situ? Like we can't find people sometimes once they're, once they're gone and how can they engage in the processes that are happening in their country, even though they're not there anymore. So for me, that's quite an interesting question ethically and logistically and legally. I would add that over the past year, there has been a great deal of thinking about persecution on grounds of gender as a crime against humanity as a result of the current ICC prosecutor's appointment of Lisa Davis, the special advisor on gender persecution. And I find this to be really exciting because I've long thought that persecution on the grounds of gender has been an underexplored crime against humanity, but it can explain so much of what we're talking about. Because if attention is paid to the differential targeting and differential harms against men, women, girls, boys, non-binary, LGBTQI plus individuals, then that can explain why sexual violence is taking place, the forms of sexual violence that are taking place, the other forms of gender-based violence that are taking place. So with yesterday's launch of the new policy paper on gender persecution, I think that that's just opened the door to a much deeper understanding of all of these things that we're talking about and perhaps could be the subject of another podcast. For sure. Yes, we hear you. And our other question, a new question, is what is your favorite court case to talk about or teach about if you teach classes or if you were talking to your students as a good example or a bad example or a wacky example of something? You know, I, despite being, you know, an advisor at the ICC, I actually have long just been really interested in national systems. And I think the the case against Isen Abre in Senegal, which was you know, hybrid in a way, but it was sat squarely in the Senegalese judiciary. That for me is such an interesting case of universal jurisdiction held in Africa, brought by victims across the continent for a former head of state. I love teaching that, that, that one because it brings out so many different roles of human rights organizations, of national actors, of international donors. So it's not a perfect case, but it's a fascinating, a very important one. We talked at length about this case with Reed Brody for another one of our podcasts. We'll put it all in the liner notes. I like to teach about the special court for Sierra Leone cases, the RUF, AFRC, CDF, and Taylor cases. Just to say those are all the different factions who are fighting each other in Sierra Leone, in case you're not a Sierra Leone aficionado. And Charles Taylor is the former president of Liberia who was sending troops into Sierra Leone to fight over there. Exactly. I like to teach these cases because they have both the good and the bad. So the CDF case, for example, there were steps backward in the prosecution of sexual and gender-based violence in The RUF case, there were steps forward with the first convictions for sexual slavery, for the discussion of forced marriage as another inhumane act, and the various types of rape that can happen in armed conflict. And I teach them because many people don't pay enough attention to these cases, just like they don't pay enough attention to the Habre case, as Kim had mentioned. 
And our final question is, have you been listening to anything podcast-wise or watching anything or reading anything that you'd like to share with our audience? And it doesn't have to be related to this field. It can be something completely different. Anything that's on your bookshelf at the moment or in your uh, listening list, do you get any time to, to do something different? Yeah, it's embarrassing. There's not a lot of time for anything but the deadlines right now. But I guess just two things. I do... Aside from your amazing podcast, I do listen to, I'm on tenterhooks in the US about our elections. We just had our midterm elections. We just had a Georgia runoff. So I listen to a lot of political podcasts just to get a sense of what state of disaster we're in at any given moment. But we you know, had some good news this past fall, so I'm heartened by that. And then I've been trying to improve my Spanish. So if I have a little bit of time, I've been watching on Netflix this completely fascinating Mexico City telenovela called Casa de las Flores, which is kind of worth worth a watch. First season is worth a watch. Mm. Okay, I don't speak Spanish, so I'll watch it in uh, in translation. You, you but can thank run the you. Subtitles, yeah. yeah. I have a tradition every evening with my youngest daughter to sit down and watch something. We call it movie time, and it's a way to get away from all of these things that uh, I'm dealing with during the day. And lately, we've been watching from beginning to end of uh, the entire six seasons of Schitt's Creek, which is a <laughs> Canadian, originally produced by CBC comedy, and it's quite lovely. I didn't know it was Canadian. Mm-hmm. It's it was Canadian. Wow. On my trip to London, I realized that it was on Netflix there, and it's not here. So I spent a lot of time Smashed. in my hotel room to watch as much as I could before the Netflix would catch on that I'm back in the Netherlands where it's not on, but it was lots of fun. Yeah, (laughs) Great suggestions, great recommendations. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your ridiculously busy uh, ICC ASP schedule and coming over here to talk to us. It was really lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.